Testing, one, two, three, one, two, three. Testing, one, two. Hi, I one second here. Testing one two three one two three. Ah, uh, I can't hear you, but I guess you can hear us. Recording in progress.
we ready? You guys ready? All right. Okay, it is 1.02 and uh, we are convening the Marin County Planning Commission on August 14th, 2023. Um, the first item on our agenda is initial transactions. Uh, Cindy, do you want to call roll? Here. He's going to be coming a little bit later. Commissioner Lynn? Here. Commissioner Clark? Here. Here. Good job. Commissioner Morales? Commissioner Beebe? Here. Thank you. Um, next item is communications. If there are any communications that commissioners would like to report to Commissioner staff. Yep. Oh, you're right. Thank you so much. We missed the minutes. Minutes. The minutes of the July 31st meeting. If people have had a chance to review them, can I get a motion to approve, please? I'll move. I'll move to approve. Uh, moved by Commissioner Lynn. Do I have a second? Second. Seconded by Commissioner Curran. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Great, thank you. Okay, now it's time for communications. If there are commissioners who would like to report any communications to the Planning Commission, now is the time. Hearing none, Jeremy. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, I'll be very brief today. I'm gonna have to update you probably later this week on the schedule in the future. Um, We'll see what happens at the hearing today. And uh, it looks like we will um, potentially be um, canceling the second hearing in September uh, for no items, but I'll have to confirm that later this week and I'll get you another preliminary agenda item um, probably, probably on Wednesday. Um, and that's really all that I have. This is going to be a unique hearing today which we will get into um, a little bit later and under item two. Thank you. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about the board adopted work plan for the planning division? So that will be um, agendized for, this, for next in two weeks. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now is the time for open time for public expression for any member of the public who would like to address the commission on an item that is not on our agenda today. I don't think I see anybody, so we will move on to item four, which is the Marin County Development Code Amendments Workshop. So these have been spearheaded by our housing division, and I'm going to ask Lily Thomas, Deputy Director of Housing and Federal Grants, to come up and Great. give you a presentation. Oh, great. Okay. Sorry. Jillian Zeger. Hi, Jillian. Hi, Hi Lily. Good afternoon, commissioners. While Jillian pulls it up, um, I will give a brief um, introduction. And Jillian Zeiger, who is a senior planner in our division, will be giving the presentation. This is a joint project that we have been working on with a number of cities and towns. 
Um, and uh, the board uh, adopted the studies as required under state law in May of this year, which was the first step in um, moving these development code changes forward. Now, if we have the presentation up, great, I'll turn it over to Jillian. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, planning commissioners and members of the public. Um, there we go. So today we are holding a workshop regarding changes to the development code um, related to the inclusionary and commercial linkage policies. Next slide, please. So um, today we'll be giving an overview of all the proposed changes and receive public testimony and review and deliberate with you all. Um, a planning commission hearing is scheduled for August 28th. Uh, for your commission to review the revised amendments and consider a resolution recommending approval uh, to um, the amendments to the Board of Supervisors. Um, next slide. So as uh, Lily mentioned, the county coordinated this project as part of the Housing Working Group, and the Housing Working Group is a monthly convening of planning directors and housing staff from um, all the cities and towns in Marin County. And this is one of uh, several projects that we're working on cross-jurisdictionally. Um, in the case of this project, uh, seven jurisdictions, including Marin County, worked together. And um, the project was funded by the SB2 Planning Grants Program. Um, and the deadline for adoption is September 30th for those grant funds. Next slide. So these are the jurisdictions that are participating in the PowerPoint slide, as you can see. Um, some of them don't currently have inclusionary policies or commercial linkage fees, and others are updating them as part of this project. Uh, next slide, please. So um, as part of this project, we um, had a consultant strategic economics um, and we also reviewed the market pa patterns in the county, um, financial feasibility of the inclusionary requirement or fee, and that study was conducted by our consultant. And then we had quite a bit of stakeholder feedback. We met with affordable housing developers and market rate developers um, multiple times. Um, and some of the feedback we heard from the stakeholders was um, a lack of consistency among the jurisdictions. Um, so we intended to have consistency among jurisdictions and this project was also a significant cost savings for the county because we all did the project together. Jillian, I'm gonna stop you for one second. Is there a way for us to get the screen in front of Jillian to, to work? That's what I was just asking. Okay. Okay, take your time or if there's not. Okay, it's not working. Got it. It is working, okay. but the table is in the way. It's not. It's, it's that not screen, but not that screen. I it's okay. See, well, I'll just take some Advil. <laughs> I didn't understand that. Sorry. So she said that it is on Zoom. If you're looking at your computer, you can see it on Zoom, but it's not going to be displayed. Just something. Ah, okay. Thank display. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Jillian. That's okay. Please continue. Okay, thank you. Um, 
So just to mention, these development code amendments will not include the affordable housing linkage fee, and that's applied to our single unit dwellings, um, and residential care facility policy, that's part of a separate study. Next slide, please. So in terms of clarifications and corrections, um, the goal of the clarifications and corrections as part of these amendments is to eliminate redundancy and provide clarity to existing policies, and I'll go into a little more detail um, later in the presentation. Next. Um, so one of the key components of this update is to include um, racially concentrated areas of affluence, and that is defined and mapped by the state. Um, and the update is that the waiver language um, is going to restrict offsite lots and units um, to unincorporated Marin County areas of um, racially concentrated areas of affluence. Um, and you may have heard us mention this in our housing element discussions with the Planning Commission, um, the board, and the public. And this is really a tool to encourage affirmatively furthering fair housing. Um, and we also eliminated references to the rental impact fee. Um, it was rescinded in 2018, and there were still references to it. So that was just a cleanup. Um, next slide, please. So to go into a little more detail on racially concentrated areas of affluence, um, I'm just going to read the definition so that we're all on the same page. Um, so HCD, which is the California Department of Housing and Community Development, um, defines it as neighborhoods where the population is disproportionately white and affluent. And the location of RCAAs are defined by HCD. The term was developed to express the continuum of segregation in communities, and it represents the opposite of racially and ethnically concentrated areas of poverty, also known as RECAP, and that was a metric developed by um, the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. So this um, is a map of the RCAAs in our county, and it includes areas of Sleepy Hollow, Kentfield, unincorporated Mill Valley, um, and other areas close to cities and towns. Um, Affirmatively furthering fair housing is a requirement of AB 686 and identified in several policies of our certified housing element. Next. So the changes to the inclusionary policy include a broader range of affordability and this encourages um, missing middle housing development and addresses the impacts of historic segregation. Um, Additionally, specific rent levels and sales prices are applied based on state law, um, consultant studies, and discussions with developers. So rental housing projects have two options, and ownership housing has specific percentages in the table. Um, there's also been an update to the roundup provisions. Um, rounding provisions are updated, and projects that have five units or less have a different roundup provisions than projects with more than five units, uh, or five units or more, those must comply with our state density bonus roundup provisions. Next. So 
we are proposing to remove the mixed-use development with ownership housing section. Um, it's redundant because we have a fee for um, our non-residential commercial, and then we have inclusionary policies for the ownership housing portion. Um, so the, the other thing we're doing in this portion is eliminating table 3-4C. Um, this table had an, a number associated with new affordable units required. Um, this table is no longer needed. The new study um, substantiates a fee and um, the recently adopts, adopted Nexus study um, substantiates that fee and it's updated um, yearly by the Board of Supervisors. Next. Um, the proposed additions also include um, adding the term racially concentrated area of affluence, which I just defined, and adding the term regulatory agreement. And um, a regulatory agreement would be entered into uh, by the developer in the county in order to ensure that the units continue to be affordable. Um, we also modified um, some of the terms to make them uh, more specific, including income ranges. So making um, more specific definitions of AMI and rent levels and sale prices. So um, we are now ready to receive public testimony and questions and comments from the Planning Commission. Thanks, Jillian. Any questions or comments from commissioners? Commissioner Curran. Um, um, I think I have, a, I have a few, but the, um, the, there's a provision in here where um, it, under waivers, um, page four, where um, the director or designee has, has uh, supplanted um, review authority um, and, um, and, and, uh, it's it, it's character. I mean, the, uh, as I read it, it's pretty. There's no there's no criteria set forth or anything for a waiver. It's just the discretion of the review authority for or now the director. Uh, what I'm just uh, curious. What was the um, what's been the experience with this, and what was the reason for that? The, the intent of it is not, and there is the criteria is that it uh, the if the proposal does a better job of meeting our affordable housing goals. And so those goals have been established through our certified housing element around providing housing at a variety of income levels, for example, providing a deeply affordable units um, consistent with our needs assessment. And so those goals have been established and it, it references that it, it does a better job of meeting the goals. And an example of this, um, that we have from years ago is the Tucson senior housing development where there would have been a requirement for the um, neighboring uh, development to include, I think, four units of um, housing integrated into it. And instead of that, they donated a piece of land to the county and we were able to develop 13 units of extremely low income senior housing for folks who are coming out of homelessness. So that did more than we would have done through the inclusionary requirement. So the intent is to have that kind of flexibility 
if we can do a better job. I think that the idea of having it at the director's level was just to be as responsive um, and as quick as we could. Also, a number of our projects are no longer going to come, the, you know, they'll be decided at a staff level through the ministerial review process, and I believe it was intended to address that. Well, well um, review authority, if it's, if it's at the staff level, staff would be the review authority if it's not otherwise coming up to the Planning Commission. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I guess I, I would question why it simply not stay with the review authority if it's a project that would otherwise be at the Planning Commission. Um, so um, anyway, but thank you for, for that response. Um, I have a few other things, but maybe somebody else does too. I'll well, get, I'll I had a follow-up on that that same section of code, or, or yeah, I guess it is of code. So you're adding the language within the same census tract or in an identified racially concentrated area of influence. So um, I'm that makes me wonder how different are the census tracts from the mapped areas of concentrated areas of affluence, is there? Um, I'll start and then if you wanna sure. add anything. So currently you're allowed to develop an offsite inclusionary unit anywhere in the county, right? right? And so one of the issues has been that, for example, we had a development proposed in Tiburon and they said, oh, we'd like to develop an offsite unit in Marin City, right? So that was not furthering our goals of affirmatively furthering fair housing and having housing integrated within it. So the the what the change is now is that it would be within the same census tract as the development or anywhere in the county in an area of concentrated affluence. And so that, for example, if you were proposing a development in unincorporated, you know, San Rafael and you propose to have it within another concentrated area of affluence, you could do it in unincorporated Tiburon, right? And that would further those goals. So I think that there there is difference because this provides more flexibility. It, it's probably unlikely, but it, it does provide more flexibility. Could you do it in one of the cities if the city was in the census tract? No, we're eliminating that. And we have, currently we allow um, a census, it, it, and it specifies that it has to be an unincorporated Marin. Currently we allow it within cities and towns, but that isn't helping us with our regional housing need allocation, and that's something that the board has really wanted us to, to focus on. So are there any instances where the census tract <laughs> is so large that it, it, it includes an area, a racially concentrated area of affluence? There must be some. Yes, I think so. Yeah, there's, um, there's census tracts in West Marin that include racially concentrated areas of affluence, but also have areas that aren't labeled as such. Okay. I'm just not trying to get in my mind how this is gonna be implemented. Commissioner Curran. Um, I, I, I guess kind of a broad, a broad question about the, the, how we've experienced this. Um, I was struck by the statistic that you have in here that um, since 1980, nine, 90 inclusionary ownership, home ownership units and 37 rental units, it's almost a three to one ratio of, of ownership to rental. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I guess on one level, it's not surprising um, 
because rental entails um, management of rental, and I can see why why that would be less attractive to some developers. Um, but uh, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, do we expect any of these changes to alter um, any of the uh, trajectory of, 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 of how this is um, implemented? So I, I would say that I think that that, um, that data that you pointed out really is reflective and says more about what Marin's development patterns are. We primarily in the unincorporated part of the county develop single unit homes, custom larger single unit homes. And so that I think is why we haven't had as many rental units developed because that isn't what we develop in the county, right? Our policies historically have favored single unit homes. We historically haven't had densities that were encouraging and facilitating multi-unit homes. And so I think that that's why the um, units, the inclusion units also reflect that. Also for a number of years, there was a state law that came into effect that didn't allow us to um, Char didn't allow us to impose inclusionary requirements on rental housing, and it was the Patterson thing, and that was later fixed by state law. Um, the legislature passed, made changes, and then allowed us again to impose inclusionary on um, rental housing. So there was a number of years, and I can't remember how long it was, but for a number of years we were not allowed to. Um, that said, I think that what we've done through these proposed changes is to make the, the um, really have a broader spectrum of housing where we have requirements for small developments, medium developments, and larger developments. And that's really intended to not have a one-size-fits-all when we are imposing the same requirement on a four-lot land division as we were on a 30 um, unit um, subdivision that really was preventing development at that smaller end of the of the scale because it was really difficult to spread those costs across four units. When you have more units, you have economy of scale and you can spread those costs across those units. And so I think that what our our goal is these changes is to have you know something that isn't a one-size-fits-all and also to hopefully address some of that missing middle where we have some of our units at a higher affordability mm -hmm. with the intent of, of providing some housing options to that group. Am, am I correct that um, that the in-lieu fees are can really only be paid for for the uh, in increment that's left over when there's you know, when you're required to put in 3.5 units, that the 0.5 can can be in lieu. That, that's correct. So we do have the option. You know, there there needs to be an option of an in lieu fee, but ours is fairly is low, right? We say first you need to provide it within the development, then you need to provide it offsite, and then if you can show f that you can't do the each of these, then you can propose the fee, um, and. You know, the fee is intended to be enough to um, develop that unit somewhere else, to fund it to be developed somewhere else. But yes, it, it's at the county decision maker's discretion. Some inclusionary policies have it where it's at the developer's discretion, and they almost always pay the fee. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that is not the case with ours. That, that's been that's been my experience uh, uh, for decades. 
um, I've observed that as well. I just had one other question, I think one other question. Um, and I probably should understand this, but I, I don't quite. Um, under, uh, on page eight, where you have the table that sets out the, um, um, uh, some of the options, which I, I think makes sense, um, but then it's a 10% in lieu fee or 5%, um, um, uh, but it doesn't say 10% of what? Uh, 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 what does 10% in lieu fee mean? 10% um, of the project would be paid with in lieu fees, and the in lieu fee, right, do you wanna, actually, do you wanna address that since you have it in front of you? Yeah, um, it's, it's based on um, the project size. So is w you're saying how is that fee assessed? How, how is that calculated? It just says 10%. I understand 10% of units. Uh, that's ten, I, but but 10% of in lieu, 10%. I think it's 10% of their of the requirement. So if the requirement was 10 units, that's like the math that I could do. If the yeah. requirement was 10 units and it was 10% of their requirement, then 10% of it would be in lieu fees. So, so one the equivalent of right, one unit. Right. The equivalent of developing one unit. Right. right. Okay. Thank you for clarifying yeah. that. Mm -hmm. That's not just the residual, the rounding residual. No, those uh, in those cases, so th that currently our current fee, and sorry if maybe I needed to, I, I thought we were talking about the, your question about was the current, currently we only allow in lieu fees with a rounding, but the proposal is to change that in some cases where it's a mix of units and in lieu fees as um, Commissioner Curran pointed out in the table. And, and, oh, thank you. I, for, I, I appreciate that explanation. Um, and just finally, I think the first place and perhaps only place the term set aside is used is in that chart. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure really what that um, uh, means in this context um, uh, the, or why it's not just a 20% requirement. Uh, it's why is it twenty percent set aside? It's, uh, that's just a that's just a, another way of saying inclusionary requirement. Yeah, that's a good point, though. I think yeah. that we sh yeah thanks for noticing that. I think that we should clarify and use the same well, or language. Just not yeah, just drop yeah. that term because I think it's yeah. the only place that term is used and it's not defined anywhere. Okay, that's thanks. helpful. Thanks. I have a further question, but it's a different topic. I was just curious whether the consultant's report generated an analysis of the relative costs of inclusionary low-income rental, or maybe we should say moderate income, versus homeowner, in, in terms of the long-term feasibility and relative costs of those different alternatives. Let me, let me make sure I'm understanding. Are you asking whether there was an analysis that compared the cost of developing a rental unit compared to a home ownership unit? Right. Yes, there was. Yeah. Okay, and so what were the conclusions from that? Do you I, I would be interested in that. Okay. I'm happy to share them with you. I'd, yeah. I'd have you know, to look you, at that. You can I don't do it have later, it on top of my You know, even at the yeah. hearing. I'm just, it's just, I think the, the reason I'm asking that is because of the historic pattern that was discussed earlier of the three to one. So. You know, is it, is it a, a larger intervention in the current marketplace to try to, to shift that relationship to get more rental units? 
is my question. Yeah, I think that one thing that we have to factor in when we're looking at that is the income that you're targeting with it, right? So if right. usually with rental units, we're trying to serve a lower income right. population than you are with ownership. So you have to factor that piece of it in too, right? So the ownership is right. moderate. Is, it, is moderate right. or at least, you know, in the low income category and not very low, for example. It's going to take a deeper subsidy right. to do a low, a low income owner. Yes. Which then gets played out in a different, a different way in terms of amortizing it across the cost of the, of the total projects or the number of years that the rental is required to remain a rental unit, right? So I'd be, I'd just be interested in what the conclusions of that okay. study was because if we're really trying to do that as a as an implementation of policy, I think we <coughs> need to understand the feasibility of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, good point, thank you. Other questions, Commissioner Dickinson? I had a couple questions <coughs> and um, First one on page seven, design and character of affordable housing units. Proposing to um, insert the word uh, exterior and interior amenities and qualities and all of that. And I know when I've dealt with um, inclusionary units, they had to be compatible in terms of material so they didn't stand out as being different, but we never required the interior to be the same materials and quality. Um, a lot of the market rate development has very high-end interior features, and I was understood that you didn't have to replicate that in the inclusionary units, jetted tubs and wolf ranges and that kind of thing. But I'm curious where that recommendation for the interior, to include interior came from. So, I think that it includes materials, amenities, et cetera. What we're, as I remember what we were really getting at with the intent um, is the design of the units as well. And by that, I mean um, square footage and bedroom count. Um, okay. and I guess we can talk about that. The appearance, materials, amenities, uh, finish quality and all of that seems to go beyond but, um, I, I think that, sorry, Commissioner Dickinson, I think that one of the goals was if there's a big push to make sure that they look the same on the outside, it's a little weird to feel like there isn't some similar thing on the inside. So that there's like, for, for the people on the outside who are looking at it, it needs to look the same, yeah. but on the inside, eh, you don't have to worry so much about it. So I think we are trying to get at that discrepancy, which felt a little bit weird, and maybe we need to clarify it to make sure that you know that there it's quality inside but you're right, right. they're it, you know excessively expensive we don't want to make okay. can i add something to that I, I we also aren't you know stipulating that they have the exact same finishes so for example like if you have wood floor in one of the market rate units versus wood floor in one of the affordable units it might be a different quality or a different finish but it's still a wood floor versus a uh, linoleum floor just just to give an example. Okay, we could talk about that when we get to uh, discussion, I guess. Um, my next question was, and it was confusing, but I think I understand it now, that like the chart 3-4D on page 9 um, is where the, it jumped out at me. 
is 10% above moderate income units, 5% above moderate income units, and I always interpreted that wording to be market rate. Mm -hmm. But it sounds, when I've read through this a second time, it sounds like that's kind of this missing middle. It's a def limited definition, just not above market rate, but it's 120 to 150%. That's correct, and I realize that as you're saying this, that we should have added a definition for that that should have been added in there because when I read this first, I had the same question about it, so I think we need to add a definition. Well, it, it is uh, defined on the chart 3-4B, which is when I read through the second time, I realized that it wasn't just market rate. It was this other category. Um, and then I had a question about, um, and it came up, this question was raised based on the earlier discussions. Um, I know when, in my past in Mill Valley, when we dealt with inclusionary units, the units were um, generally managed by the housing authority. And I think most jurisdictions contract with the housing authority for the inclusionary units in terms of in terms of recruitment, screen, screening, and eligibility. And I know in rental, because the city actually owns them, um, in uh, rental housing, like they had to do annual income verifications. And if they exceeded that, they were given, at that point, they were given a year to move out. So if someone got married or got a new high-paying job, they couldn't stay there forever. And I'm just curious, is there any such procedure for ownership units? Since such a large percentage of ours are ownership units, to continue to qualify, you wouldn't force someone to sell their house, I wouldn't think. There isn't. Um, once somebody owns the home, they own it until they, you know, regardless of what their income is. Um, and I think that that's a really good point. We should look at that because I think the goal is for people to be able to increase their incomes to, you know, start businesses to improve their job situations. And so that is the case for the ownership units. Um, when they go to sell the unit, there's income, there's affordability restrictions so that they need to sell it back to a household that was at the same right. income level as bought it at. So there's a limited equity within the ownership piece of it. But there is no requirement that... We, for instance, we found that the recreation supervisor was single, income qualified, got married, his wife made a lot more money, and he had to move out in a year because of this verification with the housing authority. But uh, Well, there's a disincentive to stay, though, if your incre income increases but your equity doesn't match the, the rest of the Well, it increases, market. but it doesn't it go up as fast as okay. market rate housing. But. The intent is that that mm -hmm. home be made available if that household no longer needed it, if their income was at a high enough that they no longer needed it, that it be made available to another household at that income. I would think that would be an incentive to stay longer, personally, because you'd be getting a really good housing bargain. Right, right, which <laughs> happens. Um, and then my final question, this is because I live in San Rafael and was on their housing element working group. The issue of this cooperative agreement between the jurisdiction, including the city of San Rafael, which has the most development potential and the most inclusionary units all, San Rafael recently reduced their inclusionary requirement to 
are they buying into going back to 20? We had a very heated debate about that in Chamber of Commerce and building. Uh, housing advocates were all arguing, no, it should be as low as possible. And in the working group, we kind of just ended up with general wording. But has the city given any indication that they are interested in going back to the 20%? The city participated in this process, and it was, it was strange timing because while we are mm -hmm. under you know, doing our outreach and working on this, they then went ahead and made those changes. They are required under the terms of the grant to come back with some changes to their inclusionary, and I don't know if they're proposing where they're at with their proposal. Do you? At this point, I don't think they're changing the percentage. They're they're focusing on the commercial linkage fee aspect. Right. But yeah. They lowered it from 20%, which it was historically, to 10%, which seemed ridiculously low, but in my opinion. Uh, those were my questions now. Anyone else have questions or comments for staff? Yeah. I have a couple questions, and I'll reserve some other comments until after the uh, public input. On, in terms of um, the number of units that have been uh, finance now but fees do we have any data on how many units that has been uh, over time I, I don't but I will look into that and see if we can dig that up before the the hearing yeah just I'm be interested curious in that on, as well. on uh, how much that has been able to uh, finance uh, we may be able to come up with the, the amount of money but I don't know if we can if we have the units but I'll okay. we'll come back with something when we both would be helpful okay it's one thing to take the money off the table and put it in a little account that says this is for affordable housing but it'd right. be really interesting to know how many units actually get built with that fee right and which department in the county administers that we do you do okay. yes so you have the, we've had inclusionary since 1980 so it's been a minute yeah <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully you can find those files <laughs> no, that'd be great thank you Good news, but <laughs> related to the uh, in lieu fees uh, on page seven it's new section or subsection H it appears to allow the uh, fees to be used outside the unincorporated county. And um, is there a difference then of, of how we look at this between what the developer has to do versus what the county may do? Yeah, so the, the board, the, traditionally the county has used our affordable housing fee throughout the county, kind of in an opportunistic way. There was for a number of years the board then only funded within unincorporated and then a number of years ago, maybe like three years ago, they kind of revisited that. Our board um, is now considering kind of how they approach funding within cities and towns. I think that there is no desire to not do that, but they just want to make sure that the those cities and towns are also participating if they're funding. So um, I think, you know, the goal really is to promote housing throughout the county, and that has been historically how we've done it. You know, if there's a good project that meets the county's goals, for example, the Victory Village project in Fairfax was funded deeply with a variety of county sources, and there was a requirement um, that we put on that project to also serve people who are coming out of homelessness. It's a senior-only project, but also serving people who are coming out of homelessness. And that was one of the goals of the board, right? It was So if it's furthering goals that the board has established, re reducing homelessness is one of them, then I think that they want some flexibility to be able to fund other projects you know, in other jurisdictions. So I think that that will likely continue. And that makes sense to me. So, good. Thank you. Commissioner Dickinson. 
Actually, that prompted another question. Um, I know relatively recently the county put what I assume is inclusionary money into the Nova Albion apartments over in Terra Linda, totally in the city of San Rafael. Um, and the city didn't agree, as it, at least at the time of the article I read, the city hadn't agreed to put any money into it. Would that still be allowed? Would so, it, inclusionary money into a, a rental project, rehab a rental project within the city? So that those dollars actually were not inclusionary because oh, our okay. inclusionary dollars really are not very much. Okay. It was We put in a significant investment in that project, but those were general fund dollars that the board had transferred into the housing trust fund. Um, and the board has committed to doing that going forward to put $5 million a year for the next five years into the housing trust fund. So those dollars are available. Um, the board, we have a board subcommittee who has made some recommendations about um, how we fund within cities and towns and kind of what the breakdown is between new development and um, acquisition of existing and those will be I think those are scheduled to go to the board the end of September with those specific recommendations um, but this the changes to the inclusionary policy are as a, a, are a, from the developers perspective like the developer if they're going to develop something within an off-site unit needs to be within the unincorporated but it doesn't limit how the board uses um, housing trust funds okay Thank you for clarifying that, because I always assumed it was part of our inclusionary fee that was used is of those two, I think, Albi Nova Albion apartment projects. So. so could I ask a follow-up question on that? So how does the state um, evaluate those units for compliance with housing targets? Do, does the county get some credit when the projects happen in the city? The county does not get credit unless there's a pre-existing agreement between the city and the county. So we could end with shared um, regional housing needs credit, so shared RENA credit, um, and that is, is the case sometimes. But those units actually won't be counting toward that conversion. It won't be counting towards the RENA, and it's complicated, but under state law, if they're currently occupied by low-income households, then you don't get to count it towards meeting your arena, even if you're anyway. converting it from, yeah, even if you're converting it from market rate, you're preventing displacement. It doesn't really make sense to me, but yeah. you're preventing displacement, you're putting long-term affordability restrictions on it, but that's the current state, state law. State policy is very pro-new construction. That's right. Any other questions, comments? We'll see you in a couple weeks. Public comment? Oh, public, right. Thank you. Is there any member of the public who would like to address staff or committee? Please. My name is Jack Crystal, and I think that it's quite obvious that this process has been very lengthy, complicated, and uh, in many instances confusing to say the least, and 
Molly Cron and Lily Thomas have been at it for a long time. Uh, I don't want to take up an exceedingly amount of time, but I made copies, which I'd like to pass on to you, of where this was last year. And I've been highly concerned and worried <coughs> on changes that had been proposed to the to the code. So if I may. You can Thank bring them to the secretary, please. Thank you. So as you can see, this goes back to a cover email letter uh, in November, but then at that time it uh, covered uh, areas that had to do with some major, very important proposed changes. Um, in I'm curious to know if these items were removed, were changed. Are they somewhere else? Um, is uh, these proposed revisions, in some instances, um, there are conflicts and there are also uh, confusing aspects that should, of course, uh, no one wants that to be in there, none of us. Uh, I'm also concerned and would like to know if the planning department and the commission has taken into account uh, properties that are um, on water where housing has in the past being developed, built, and now there will be, of course, some major improvements that will take place in areas like Santa Venetia, in areas in Sausalito, uh, and that relates to sea level rise as well as the, the fact that in many instances, some homes will have to be jacked up. And as such, does this cover what we know will happen? Uh, I personally, my company, we own about 10 and a half acres of um, Mr. Water Crystal, properties. I'm going to ask you to wrap up your comments. You have three minutes okay. and you're a couple in minutes over. Richardson Bay and close to almost next door to an existing houseboat complex. Uh, 
in close to the Richardson Bay Bridge. All that area will require major improvements as a result of sea level rise. The code will, of course, have an effect on that. And would you keep in mind, ask, and if this can include the development of that area for housing and, of course, parking, parking garages, um, and how that can and will provide what's needed in southern Marin and outside of Marin City uh, and working together with that area, taking in, uh, in account all the major improvements that will have to take place by the county, Caltrans, and everything else. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Crystal. Are there any other members of the public who would like, like to address the commissioner staff on this topic? Okay. Seeing, oh, uh, Commissioner Stepanisech, you had an additional comment. Yeah, I have a couple of suggested uh, edits uh, just for consideration by staff to think about before the next meeting. And the first one would be on uh, page two of the ordinance and um, where it talks about the applicability to various types of uh, development. And there are various references to the, for the affordable housing impact fee. And it's described a little bit differently between different sections. I thought it may be helpful just to come up with a new definition uh, in the definition section of affordable uh, housing impact fee. And therefore, there could just be a uniform reference to that rather than having to repeat what that fee is each time within the ordinance. And, um, and that also includes then how the fee gets adjusted. That, it seems to me that could be included within the definition. The second um, item was, um, and this is a, a former section, and I think maybe it needs to be uh, revised, which is on page three, and it's subsection uh, H. And it says that subdivisions subject to an inclusionary requirement are not subject to the affordable housing impact fee, but they would be afford, uh, subject to the incremental fee, I believe if it is a subdivision, either with houses or with lots? Yes, they're, they're not subject to the affordable housing impact fee because you can't, you can't charge somebody twice, right. right? So they are subject to the inclusionary policies, which could include the inclusionary fee and units that and we were talking about. That's a portion part of it, right. or programmatic yes. portion yes. of it. So I think that may be helpful to just clarify that in, in that section because the way it's worded right now would indicate that there's no additional fee would be, uh, would be allowed. And just a couple more items here um, on page uh, seven. Um, there is the uh, provision in terms of dispersing the affordable units throughout the location of the um, project. It says that may be modified for cause. And it's just a suggestion there may be helpful to have some standard because cause is, is a pretty vague uh, standard to apply. And then with respect to the approval of the um, affordable housing plan, uh, I, I don't believe it, it says who actually approves it. Uh, so this would be on page 11 in, in a section uh, or subsection A under 22.22.110. So I'd re I recommend I, that. I believe it's just approved with the uh, other approval process of the Oh, I of see. the project. Oh, it's I just see. Part so of so the it would project. be. It would be. Yeah. I got it. So it would be approved that it's part right. of the project. Uh, actually, no. This is this is subsequent. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. because this is a post decision. This is post decision. Right. Yeah. Right. So we we would we would put in that it would be by the agency. Right. Yeah. Good. And in also on page, similarly on page 12, and this is again, is on implementation of the housing plan. Um, it refers to the county or its designee under the county monitoring the required affordable housing units, but likewise there it would seem helpful to specify who that official or his or her designee would be. We, the, you know, the implementation is often as some, as one of the commissioners, as Commissioner Dickinson referenced earlier, the housing authority, we can, we contract with them, but we don't name them because it's, you know, we could contract with somebody else. So I think I that that's what we're talking, that's what it's referencing. So that's why it just says. And, and so the reference to the designee would be to a, uh, a, 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 a contracting party that right. county would contract with. Okay. And uh, I think that's it. I had a couple of other minor items I'll just pass on in writing to staff after the meeting today. That would be great. Thank you. Yep. Any other comment? Uh, Commissioner Dickinson. Um, as I men mentioned um, in the question section, um, I would suggest that you look at using this term above moderate income and see, because the other categories, very low income, low income, and moderate are all standard terms. We've introduced a new term here, which as, as I, when I read through it, I thought it just meant market rate housing. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can just create a new definition for something that 120 to 150% of, um, of median income. But um, then the other thing is, I think it would be a good idea to look at that wording under new section F about the in interior requirements. I mean, I understand what the intent is. I think it implies more than you actually probably intend, but, um, and rather than just the, the, the strikeout type change, look at maybe just rewording the entire sentence there. Um, and those were my suggestions. Commissioner Curran. Um, I, I agree with Commissioner um, Dickinson about uh, the interior. Totally appreciate the, uh, the desire there um, to, to have it be a good quality, but you, we don't want to inadvertently be driving up prices. And I, the way it's worded right now, it could be construed as identical. Um, and someone could arguably, you know, come and say, hey, you know, this, this is not right. So. Um, and then um, just for my two cents, and I'm, I'm unable to be here at the next meeting, I apologize, I have a family matter I have to attend to. But, um, but uh, I, I would hope that uh, when, you, when the commission gets around to it next, uh, at the next meeting that, um, that we have the, the re return to the standard of review authority as opposed to directing. Thanks. Anyone else? Any other members of the public who'd like to address the commissioner staff? Okay, now we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. I'm going to close that. Thank you. Okay, the next item on the agenda, number five, the Brian Johnson Trust Coastal Permit and subsequent mitigated negative declaration, which is an item that has been continued from our last meeting on July 31st. So, 
This is the unique part. Yes. So during the last hearing, um, you had a presentation. Um, some of you had a presentation. You weren't all here, but hopefully you've had a chance to go back and look at that presentation uh, regarding the application. And um, there was one item before you with two separate actions related to that item. One of those actions was approving a negative declaration of environmental impact, which needed to be done first because an environmental impact had been found, was not categorically exempt. Uh, and the second action was whether to approve or deny the application. This is a complicated application. I'm sure you've all been through the materials. It's the first time you've ever seen a takings analysis, and the first time we've ever done one. And um, it's not material to kind of digest, so it's a complicated application. Uh, there was a discussion of the environmental review, and uh, we had available um, the consultants who prepared that environmental review, um, who are here again today if you have any questions regarding environmental effects. Uh, and then there was also a discussion of the project. And um, during that discussion, it was decided that you would take a vote on the environmental review since that was first. When you voted, there was a three to three tie and under the uh, bylaws, when there's a three to three tie, that is a denial, okay? So once that denial was issued, you then voted to continue the second action of that item, which was approval or denial of the project to today's date. And um, that is somewhat problematic because you must have the environmental determination in order to approve the project, but you have denied the environmental determination. So there is a policy within the bylaws which allows you to reconsider a past decision as long as it is during the hearing in which you made that decision we're already past that, or at the next hearing when you uh, evaluate the resolution and the minutes of that. Okay, so that's where we are today. Uh, and the other thing is that decision that you issued two weeks ago is appealable. And the final date for action, I'm sorry, the final date for that appeal to be filed is today. Okay? So, um, that can be appealed, uh, but we are also now presented with what do you want to do with the application? So what I recommend is that you actually have a hearing on that application and decide whether or not you want to approve it or deny it. If you want to approve it, then you will need to postpone that approval for two weeks and you will need to vote to reconsider the previous denial. And the bylaws say that we must then re-notice 
after you vote to reconsider so you cannot make a decision to approve today because you need to vote to reconsider and then in two weeks you'll be able to come back and reconsider on that date the environmental review take that action and then the approval of the project and take that action however if you decide to that you want to deny the project then there's no reason to continue it for another two weeks you've already taken action on the environmental review you would take action today on the project and um, we would you know of course an appeal today on your action two weeks ago we would group together um, the appeal a uh, supposed appeal on both actions and take that forward to the board um, but that appeal would be able to go forward um, to the board with the denial of both mitigated negative declaration and the project it is up to you of course it's your decision at this point um, so you can probably probably would be a good idea to at least open this to some discussion um, for or questions or discussion we do have our attorney here if you have questions about the legality of all this um, but that is my recommend recommendation at this point and we are sticking with our recommendation that you approve the mitigated negative declaration and approve the project as recommended thanks Jeremy, Jeremy okay. on, the, on the motion for reconsideration uh, oftentimes I don't know how our bylaw was worded here uh, oftentimes it's required that the person on the prevailing side has to make the motion uh, in this time in this case the prevailing side was actually a denial of the motion so is, is that required in our own bylaw or can anyone make the motion for reconsideration well what I would recommend um, it doesn't say prevailing side unfortunately it's not that clear what I would mm -hmm. recommend is that a person who voted against the project uh, make the motion and a person who voted for the project second that motion may I just ask a, I think what a quick question Commissioner um, when a hearing is continued it 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 is exactly that in my in my experience if it is not uh, a sep we're not conducting a separate meeting we are conducting a continued meeting it was continued to a date certain um, which is required of that process and so I guess the under uh, the underlying and, and maybe we just want belt and suspenders and to not have anything be questionable but I, I wouldn't think that this is a new meeting at which we can no longer reconsider something I would think this is a continuation of that meeting um, so the issue I think is you continued so there were two actions under one item so you issued a decision on one of those actions already you continued the item so now it's open to uh, issue a decision on the other action but I don't think you can go back without deciding to reissue the decision on the first one but then by definition you could never do it because even if we were meeting it was still midnight and you know we were going on that thing we would have taken that initial action and you're saying that would have been timely to reconsider it later in two weeks ago, but it's no longer timely to reconsider it. Let um, me let so me read what it says. So anyway, <laughs> it, did you just seek that through? Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, no, I, I, read what it actually says, because I think it that, might yeah. clarify a little any bit. Rate, so it says, reconsideration number 10 of the bylaws. Mm -hmm. A decision of the commission may be reconsidered at a subsequent publicly noticed meeting only if a motion to reconsider is made by a commissioner who voted in the majority on the original decision and is approved by a majority vote of those commissioners present at either one, the same meeting at which the matter was decided, or two, the subsequent meeting at the time the minutes and resolution reflecting the action taken at the original meeting are considered for ratification. If a majority of the commission decides to reconsider an action, a new public notice shall be distributed. Nothing in this section shall be construed as to waive the requirements of the Permit Streamlining Act. I should note that the PSA does not uh, apply in this case because you have an issue, because well, we're still under environmental review. So to Commissioner Kern's point, though, we're operating under the first number one that you said. That you said either a subsequent meeting or in the same meeting. And so per Commissioner Curran's point, we are still in the same meeting because we are in a continued meeting. Um, I'm not sure about that. I can ask Brandon, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I... When you read that, I thought it meant we could consider the... Re we can take action to reconsider now, but once, once that's now then reestablished as a live decision, it has to go through an additional notification process yes. at a subsequent meeting. Right. So I don't think that there's a way of issuing another decision yeah, today. That's the, that's right. the difference. We can't decide it. We right. can decide to re that we will hear it again. Yeah. That's what we can decide yeah. today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And again, I recommend you know, postponing this <laughs> until after you've actually made a straw vote, mm -hmm. not an actual vote, Discussion straw vote, vote on the actual project. Commissioner Dickinson. Um, Jeremy, I was just reading the minutes to see what is actually in the record. I mean, I think the discussion was a little confusing at the end of the last meeting, but the minutes actually say uh, to approve the project based on the findings and subject of the condition contained in attachment one, recommended resolution, and attachment two, sequel resolution. So the vote was actually on both. And then the motion, the sec next motion, was to continue this item until the next hearing. And the item was both the project and the CEQA review. It wasn't like we only acted on the mitigated negative declaration. Well, we, would, we can check the tape, but I think it was just on the MND. Otherwise, why would you continue it? What's there to continue? Well, to allow further discussion and presumably have an uh, an odd number of commissioners here to vote. You already made the decision? Yeah, we, we didn't realize that That's the tie was a denial, perhaps. Well, and I, I should apologize, too, because when the motion was made, I do, I remember it being just the MND. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm used to the rules being around if you issue a decision on a project, then there's a process to, like, revoke that or rescind it or whatever, and then you have to do it. But because it was on the MND, I didn't like raise the same red flag for me. Yeah. I, otherwise, I would have jumped in. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. It just didn't occur to me that, of course, you, know, you can't approve the project without an MND. So once right. you deny the MND, well, you're done. Well, I remember done. we discussed that, yeah. in yeah. fact. We I did. I remember that discussion. Um, Can I just go on the record yeah. as having yes, had a, co a communication with 
Mr. Kinsey about the project. We didn't get into any of this, I want you to know. But, uh, and just because I wasn't at the last meeting, and we still have an even number of commissioners, I want to point out. But uh, uh, we just discussed the project. Um, okay, well, so let's discuss whether or not we want to reopen. Is there anyone who voted against the MND who would like to revisit it? This is a Brown Act uh, me meeting, so of course you have to open it up for uh, public right. comment. Yeah. I've only been on the commission for 12 years. <laughs> we, oh. we, it takes me a little while. <laughs> I, I um, like hear from county council if we could just on this sure. person. Yeah. Thank you, You have to speak right into it. Brandon Halter, Deputy County Counsel. I think Jeremy has done a, a, an admirable job of explaining what I think is a convoluted procedural situation. Um, the bylaws were, I think, probably not written to cover every conceivable scenario. Um, they do use the word, or the bylaws does use the word decision, though, when it's talking about the action that is being reconsidered. So whether we call this a continued meeting or a different meeting, either way, parts of the bylaws contemplate reconsidering at either the same meeting or the subsequent meeting. So whichever way we want to characterize what's happening right now, that's an issue I'd prefer not to take a firm position on because I don't think it really matters. Either way, there is a procedure in place for how you can reconsider today. Um, and so I agree with Jeremy's recommendation, we've talked about this, of uh, a discussion among the planning commission members about whether or not there is an appetite to discuss approving the permit. And if there is, then you can talk about reconsidering the MND. Because if there isn't that appetite in the first place, there's no point. So I think that's where I am, unless I have missed any questions. Thank you. Okay, well let's go ahead, Commissioner Dickinson. Um, was Jeremy correct that one of the commissioners who voted against the motion would have to make the motion? Because there are only two of us here today. <laughs> right, and, and Jeremy, I think, was very careful uh, and well justified in saying um, the bylaws are not particularly helpful on that point. They use the word, it uses the word majority, which I think in spirit probably refers to the group of votes that carried the ultimate decision. So since you had a three to three, but due to the posture of the hearing that uh, resulted in a de denial, then I think the recommendation that you have a member of the group in the um, denial vote be making the motion. I think that's a fair solution. I would be willing to make that motion. All right, well, I think that we will get to that after we open the hearing. Yes. Yes? Okay, great. I just wanted to clarify that so Thank we you, know that we don't have to do the meeting and go thing. home. Right. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's open the, the, the meeting and have staff present.
So I think that means, Sabrina, you're on. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, there's not that much to present. I mean, I think you got a supplemental right. presentation, a supplemental memorandum. We did try yep. to follow up on some questions that had been raised previously. Yep. Had a conversation with the Stinson Beach County Water District, um, made sure that all of the information, the voluminous information, um, had been um, forwarded to your commission and uh, prepared the responses that you have today. So there's not really much else, I, I think, to add. Um, if you uh, want to open up the public hearing or ask any qu additional questions, we'll do our best to um, answer them. And again, we do have our environmental professionals here if you have questions regarding um, environmental issues, which are, of course, related not only to the environmental review, but also to the project itself. Okay, thank you. So, Commissioner Dickinson. I have one question, and that is, has there been any more recent correspondence from the Coastal Commission? There have not been any correspondence from the Coastal Commission. The last one was like in February or something like that. Right. Um, it was the last comments we received were related to the environmental review. Any other questions from commissioners or staff before we open the public hearing? Okay. Um, I have three comment uh, speaker cards if you would like to address the commission on this issue. Um, please fill one out and, and, um, and I will call you. And Mr. Kinsey, I can, I can I'll, I'll pretend that you have one in. Um, <laughs> Michael Lamont. Yes, uh, my name is Michael Lamont. I've lived on Onda for 40 years. I'm a full-time resident. I am representing uh, several other residents on Onda who could not attend due to work or vacation. Uh, Jim and Belinda Zell, uh, Ellen Stein, and Stephen Trafone. They're all residents of Onda. Uh, we're all opposed to um, uh, the construction of this prop on this property uh, because of the dune. But before that, I want to ask a question. Um, the water board has not given this development a permit. It expired, and a new, a new permit has not been issued. Why isn't this being addressed? From my understanding, and in talking to the water board, the water board has to give permission for a permit for a septic system before all this discussion can take place. That permission expired. We now have a new director who I don't think will be as likely to acquiesce, should I say, to uh, lawsuits. There was a lawsuit when the water board voted no, and uh, the water board spent $20,000 defending their decision and finally they said, okay, we give up. We can't spend any more money. And so they reluctantly agreed. Now we have a new director and I don't think he's going to roll over quite as easily. Plus the January 5th <clears throat> storm surge really brought home how protected we were from this dune where other Kayes had 
some damage, some extensive damage to their septic systems. That storm surge uh, had a minor low tide, a minor high tide, I should say, and yet the colliers were all flooded. And we were protected because our dune is on the southeast corner of our street, and the storms come from the southeast. So um, I think the water board's going to take another look at this because <clears throat> this storm surge, which is a brand new term used for the West Coast, that's a hurricane term. And they were all scratching their heads saying, we don't know why they're using this term, but it's a storm surge. And um, anyhow, because of the damage it did to septic systems, they're going to think twice about approving this. <clears throat> also, uh, the county of Marin is seriously thinking of building, uh, as you probably know, uh, barriers to protect the calles. And uh, we're the only calle that has a dune. None of the others do. So why build something that's going to destroy that dune and then have the county come in and put in all these artificial dunes when we have a natural dune that protects us. Thank you, Mr. Lamont. Thank you. Uh, next is Scott Ty from Surfrider Foundation. You have five minutes. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Scott Ty with Surfrider Foundation. Last meeting on the 31st, I mentioned three words, errors, omissions, and deletions. I was serious about that. Um, I want to take everybody back just a bit because I, w I showed up in this chamber in 2008, in 2010, in 2014 to work on the LCP. Some of you voted for those LCP updates. They were then eventually approved and forwarded to the Board of Supervisors and then forwarded to the Coast Commission. Almost all of the LCP was approved with the exception of environmental hazards. What are we talking about, environmental hazards? I've been on a subcommittee of the Planning Department for four years looking at environmental hazards. We haven't met in two years. It's the can that gets kicked down the road. And the Coast Commission said, fine, you can implement all your LCP elements except for environmental hazards. You have to go back to 1981 LCP and implement those. And I've heard Tom Lai and Jeremy and other people say, well, our staff can interpret that. Good luck. <clears throat> the ESHA, however, was approved by this commission by the supervisors, by the Coast Commission. And the ESH is really clear that you don't set against an environmentally sensitive area a development and you trade it off. What's very clear is in the LCP that's been approved, you have two sections, both of which say you cannot remove the, LC the, the ESHA in order to develop and then come up with a new ESHA. That's what I heard last meeting. It's not acceptable. It violates the LCP. The implementing plan was approved by this commission 
again by the county supervisors and by the uh, Coastal Commission. I want to bring two other things up. C-Smart. Everybody loves to use C-Smart. It's dated because it was published in 2017, 2018 and approved. And in C-Smart, the coastal uh, the coastal beach process scientist made sure to implement in that a trigger mechanism. I haven't heard anything from anyone about the C-SMART trigger mechanism, which is exactly what Mike Lamont's talking about. It's exactly what we're talking about. The triggers have been pulled. So you need to go back and do your homework. The third thing has to do with current and most recent modeling of the coast sea level rise and flooding. I handed out to all of you last meeting a federal study by NASA, which was published in peer review in 2021. That study didn't recommend us do anything because we can't affect the moon. Maybe we think we can, but we can't affect the moon. The moon wobbles every 28 years. We've known this since Darwin and the Beagle. It's not new science, it's science. And it goes to one side of the Pacific and then to the other side every 28 years. They wrote the report and published it to remind everybody that when we plan for coastal sea level rise effects, we have to take that into consideration. It's now on our side for the next 26 to 28 years. It'll take till 2030, 2035, but it's 0.1 to 1.1 feet on top of whatever else happens. Again, if you want to look it up, I gave you the reference points on the sheet. Um, it was a NASA University of Hawaii study, and it was published in Climate Change Review. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Um, Elizabeth Rikas. <clears throat> Elizabeth Breckis on behalf of the Seraphians. They are adjacent property owners. Uh, we're approaching meeting fatigue. I appreciate that and I appreciate your uh, diligence in following this item. Uh, I want to point out a couple things that I pointed out in my most recent letter, which is uh, the size of this structure before it was uh, ruined and, and um, uh, fire caused it to be destroyed was 450 square feet and staff keeps saying it's 540 square feet and I just want to point out there isn't data to support that number. I also want to point out uh, a comment that was made previously about um, the size of the structure including comment that uh, uh, Commissioner Dickinson made about a den with a closet which could read as a bedroom and suggest that if you're going to uh, make this project smaller, that would be an appropriate place to do so. Also, uh, there was a comment by Commissioner Dickinson about the fact that because we don't have an EIR, we don't have an analysis of alternatives. And there was a question from staff, have you looked at alternatives? And I wanna point out uh, that that is obviously the job that can and should be done here. Looking at making this project smaller um, would be appropriate and certainly would be consistent with what was there previously. 
um, would be better for the environment and an opportunity to take this structure out of some of the habitat and make it um, a less impactful structure. Um, the house could be denied, as you heard from county council. The takings analysis is um, has been before you, and yet county council said it is within your discretion to do what you will here. And so I just want to make sure that you remember that point from county council. Uh, the house could be smaller, um, and again, 450 square feet was what was there before, and you can and should look at a smaller structure. Uh, the precedent. Um, some of these regulations are newly before you in terms of a, a development in Stinson Beach, and I'd like to encourage you to consider what will happen if this um, project is allowed to go forward. The septic. Um, there was a comment by um, someone with a code analysis, and I think that, that was submitted to you, and I believe was before you recently, and that is spot on. I'm not going to repeat it, but um, uh, another point I would like to make to you is the California Coastal Commission has said that the retaining wall that is around the septic system is, in their opinion, a shoreline protection device. That letter was sent in August of 2021. It was sent after the approval by Stinson Beach. And so your resolution finding that it is not is not consistent with what you have been told by the F California Coastal Commission. And that August 5th, 2021 letter um, from the California Coastal Commission is before you. And it specifically says the bottom of the barrier wall will be at an elevation of nine feet NAVD 88, which is expected to protect the system through 270. However, because the LS LCP hazards policy prohibits shoreline protection devices for new development, the county would require the applicant to instead propose a wastewater treatment system that would be consistent with the LCP. So that is, um, from their August 5th, 2021 letter, and that was after um, the approval from Stinson Beach. We also would like to make another point which we made in our letter submitted before this meeting, which is the constraint map continues to be vague and ambiguous. There were questions by the commissioners about what it showed um, at the last meeting, and there was a reference to what it showed but I believe it continues to be unclear, and that's the applicant's duty to make it clear to you. If it was clear, then it would be possible to look at the development and determine how the development is um, impacting that and whether and where it could be put so that it was not as impactful, and that has not been shown. Uh, the California Coastal Commission um, let, uh, letter of August 5th, 2021 made that point as well. They said it is not clear where buffer from ESHA would be. Um, my last point would be the dune restoration plan. It's a necessary mitigation requirement, but we don't know what that is. We don't know how it will be implemented or what county oversight will be. Instead, staff stated at the last meeting that um, it could be handled as a code complaint. If anyone is familiar with code complaints, you know what a terrible system that would be. Presumably, that would be the neighbors saying, hey, we don't think the don't dune restoration plan has been sufficiently provided. 
staff had stated that their practice would be to allow that to be submitted with a building permit, but you, as the commissioners, have no control over that, and the county is not requiring the applicant to do anything to make sure that dune restoration plan is carried through and appropriately um, done, and as we heard, it's five years. It'll be a five-year uh, dune restoration plan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Kinsey. Thank you. Uh, I am gonna be uh, speaking also with Len Rifkine, who will be representing the owners as well. I will begin the, the comments, and then uh, Len will follow me, and I will probably be asking for 12 minutes, not 10. Um, so at this point, um, if uh, Sabrina or someone could bring up the, the um, slideshow that we have, and um, while she's doing that, I wanted to point Jeremy, that actually, in fact, the county did do a takings analysis for four Embarcadero uh, and approved the project, and it was um, appealed to the Coastal Commission, and they did find no substantial issue. So this is not uh, the precedence. This is precedence given the new LCP language, but certainly not precedence in terms of the county approving a project uh, through a takings analysis. So first slide, please. I mean, next slide, excuse me. You know, I, I thought it was important uh, for us to start by providing you a 1913 view of what we now call Stinson Beach. And what you're gonna see there is that before any homes existed in the sea drift, the patios, or the calles, before any of them were built, the entire 11,000 foot stretch was dune. So when we talk about dune, what is so unique about this 80-foot frontage of dune that suddenly allows neighbors who charge $6,000 a week to rent their homes can characterize this as the last remaining piece of Esha that needs to be protected? Next slide, please. So our client, Mr. Johnson, his family has owned this since 1937, this property. He remembers his youth coming to visit his grandmother and doing summer vacations uh, at Stinson Beach when it was a small cottage. Everything about Stinson Beach has grown since then. At that time that he uh, first purchased uh, or was given his grandmother's interest in the property, the value uh, that the county set for the land was only $70,000. He has bent over for every request that has been made to date. He's pulled back from the sandy beach. He has agreed to no rope fencing or barriers uh, on the beach. Uh, he's reduced the original project by 25% of footprint. So that's substantial on a lot that is twice as big as the neighboring lots in the community. He's given up his second story, his garage. He's agreed to no future armoring and no non-native plants. He's agreed to this substantial dune restoration. He's donating full access uh, across his entire frontage, and he's removing all development when the residence ends, including the septic system. Next slide, please. You know, in, because of this and the substantial review that this project's gone through, this will be the most environmentally responsive property in the CAIAs. Um, the environmental reviews, and there have been several, and none of them, none of them have found any uh, substantial impacts that cannot be mitigated. Um, the 
the key here is that by characterizing the property as a dune, which originally it was not, but as subsequently it has been, it then therefore makes it ESHA, therefore it cannot be built on, it cannot have buffers. And so the dune restoration plan is an attempt to allow for the, uh, takings not to occur, but to still work to protect the, the, the dune. And the, the Johnsons have agreed to that. It has the smallest septic system that Stinson Beach will allow, and so it's not based on rooms in Stinson Beach, it's based on square footage of the unit, and this unit now is well below uh, the minimum size and the minimum septic system that the Stinson Beach Water Dish will approve. Its floor area ratio now is at 9%, where the homes in the area around it are at 20%. So it's, it's substantially uh, more modest than the surrounding development in terms of its impact. Um, there is really no projection for Escoot Creek flooding to reach this site because, as I showed you last week, it is a high point in the community. Um, and um, it's simply time to say there's no legitimate public interest to further reduce this project. And again, uh, next slide, please. Um, the site is ESHA in name only. What this is <clears throat> is being characterized as Dune ESHA, and yet all of the environmental consultants that have looked at this have agreed that with all of the surrounding development over the last 100 years, with the million or more beachgoers who traipse across this property every year on the beach, there simply are no sensitive habitats, sensitive species, no wetlands. The only thing that characterizes this as Esha is that it is, in fact, sandy beach mounded up in the way in which it is. And even if you look at the definition which I've provided for you there, it really shows that this is in name only and that, in fact, the county policy around prohibition of natural sand dune uh, impacts talks about um, west of Paper Street, Mira Vista. This would be east of that and dry sand areas. And we have, in fact, pulled the property fully back from the dry sand areas. So next slide. We really strongly believe you'll see that it does meet the development standards of the local coastal program. It, it provides buffers between the residents and the public. It provides scenic and recreational opportunities, including a donated easement on a, the shoreline portion of the property. Um, it, it really is a modest home in an existing neighborhood. And I'm going to turn it over to Len Rithkind to talk a little more about the takings. Next slide, please. Good afternoon, Madam Chair, members of the Commission. My name is Len Rifkind. I'm sure you all enjoyed reading my letter with the U.S. Supreme Court case citations. I'm sure that was very uh, exciting reading. I, um, I think the point to take away on that it simply is this, is that you've heard Mr. Kinsey say, and you know from reading your very detailed and excellent staff report, that this project is about as small as it can get and still be economically viable. And so there is no bright line as I say in the slide up there, for a takings. It's a, it's a continuum. At some point, it becomes a taking, but I don't know what that is, and I don't think any of you know that what, what that is, and ultimately one day, maybe a U.S. Supreme Court might have to decide that, and hope, God forbid, that doesn't happen. But we think that this project now at 1,200 square feet, single story, no garage, et cetera, is about as small as it can get, and uh, 
reason why we say economically that's about as small as it can get is because the lot, uh, at least the assessed value is like a million three. The appraised value by an appraiser is $2.7 million. So no one's gonna pay that much money for land if you can, if as Ms. my colleague Ms. Breckis just told you a couple of minutes ago, she wants you to build a 450 square foot house. I don't think someone pays $2.7 million for a 450 square foot house. We're talking 1,200 feet, 9% FAR. That's pretty minimal. Um, next slide, please. I just covered about the assessed value that you have. Next slide, please. Another key point that I want the commission to understand is that Mr. Johnson's family, they've invested real money in this lot. Not Some was given to Mr. Johnson by his grandmother. He's actually paid money to other relatives to buy percentages. And um, they've spent almost, it's unbelievable, $400,000, uh, fortunately little in legal fees, but lots of consultant fees to get this far. It's crazy. I, I can't believe you have to spend that much money just to get a, a small 1,200 square foot house on a parcel where it previously had a house built. That seems crazy. Just seems like that your takeaway is that the applicant has reasonable uh, investment-backed expectations. No one ever said to this applicant, you can't build. And if you listen to the neighbors and all the opposants, oh, sorry, you can't build. No, and, and I know there was some concern in the commission last time, oh, this is gonna be precedent and there's lots of, we're gonna have a rush of all kinds of houses coming in. I'm aware of only one other home in the patios or calles, I mean, one other parcel that might potentially be developed. And as I would hope this commission does, you take cases on a case-by-case -case basis to determine that. I just, I wanna finish with uh, just responding to a couple of comments I heard from during the public hearing. Um, this is the, we've talked about the dune restoration and all of that. This project is the least environmentally intense project possible for this site. And under your LCP, you're not allowed to do zero project. You're supposed to minimize the project so that it is the least environmentally um, impactful project possible. And I think that's what we've reached here. Uh, Ms. Breckis mentioned that there's no EIR, an alternative. Am I almost out of time, I good? You are out of time. Oh, because I was watching this clock go down. Yep, and now it's going up. Let's see, can I have 30 more seconds and, you I'll, may. Be, and I'll be quiet? <laughs> okay. EIRs don't apply because this is a single family home, they're categorically exempt, we all know, we all know that. And then lastly, there was some mention about, oh my gosh, you have a barrier around the septic. Well, I feel like uh, a push me, pull me at that point. Like, do you want the septic to not flood out when there's a, quote, storm surge or not? Stinson Beach Water Authority approved this uh, most bomb-proof septic system in the entire neighborhood. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Rifkin. I have a question. Mr. Dickinson. Um, Mr. Rifkin, I have a question for you. Uh, there was a, obviously a previous house on this um, property, relatively modest. I was in reading through all of this information and uh, particularly the financial investment. All, I was curious whether the then owners, which the current owner would only have been a, a partial owner at that point, did they receive um, insurance for the house that was destroyed? 
I don't know the answer. The house was destroyed, I think, in 1985, and I think right. it was a fire. And so typically people do have property insurance. And so I can't tell you with personal knowledge whether they did or not, but it seems likely to me that most prudent homeowners would have fire insurance. Right. It's not required unless you have a mortgage. but um, Of course. But, I mean, most, most prudent people have fire insurance, assuming in this day and age that you can actually get insurance. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an assumption. That's another issue, not for this commission. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. If there are, are there any other members of the public who'd like adr- to address the commission on this item? Okay. I'm going to close public comment and bring it back to the commission for discussion and or further questions of staff. Commissioner Tesser, this is your... Thank you. Uh, area. Don't you know I hauled hauled myself out of my sick bed because I didn't want to disappoint anybody uh, by not being being here today. Um, Well, I just want some clarification. This lot now is bigger than the one where that first house originally sat, right? This has been a combination of of several lots to create a larger parcel and FAR wise, as we've said, it's actually pretty. It's very, it's legal and well below what other houses in the neighborhood. So under the ownership, um, like over time, they've owned two parcels, two tax parcels that had been combined, one. Um, but their ownership in um, consists of the lot as you see it today. So back when the home was on it, it was on one of the two lots that were under the same ownership. And over time it was um, combined through mergers. The lots have been consolidated. Correct. So it's really kind of different conditions today than, <coughs> than obtained at the time when the small, the, the 540, 450, however big it was, uh, house was there. And there's no question that this, that the FAR is legal the height is legal. I mean, it's meeting all of the uh, all of our conditions. Um, I mean, uh, I'd like to follow up question. Yeah. <laughs> is it tax parcels or subdivided parcels? Um, so previously, it was two tax parcels, um, and now the p- property consists of one legal lot of record. So there was a parcel merger. Three. A legally described and recorded parcel merger. Yes. So there were previously two legal lots Mm -hmm. under an old subdivision? That determination was never made. It's not necessary to make that determination in order to do a merger. You didn't do a certificate of compliance? Right. And the, another thing I'd like a clarification, I mean, we'll have some discussion, but um, is that we have determined that it is, this is not ESHA. Our environmental folks are saying that this is not environmentally sensitive habitat area. No, I think that it, it is, since it's a dune, it, it is treated just as environmentally sensitive. Hab- yeah. But the dune portion of the property, though, correct? Yeah, just the dune portion of the property. It's not, it's not all considered dune, but there's a dune portion of the property that's considered ESHA, and that's why we did the takings analysis for the house. And then are they, and you'll forgive me, sorry I missed the last meeting and I'm not totally up to speed here. Is any of the house still then 
uh, proposed to be on the dune itself? Yes. It is supposed to be on the dune. Yeah, that's why that's the issue previously we had done the takings analysis just for the septic system. Uh, but since that time, we've had that remapped. There's a larger portion of the property than previously understood to be dune that is dune, and portion of that um, is also where the house is. So we've made the takings findings for both the septic system and the house. And what about, I um, mean, you know, are we endangered species of our analysis has found or has not found? Yes, we have found endangered. No, we have not. Um, so the really the the resource is the dune itself. Right. There's it's not you know habitat for any endangered species or anything. Um, dunes, of course, are valuable and are treated such, uh, and that's why there's a dune restoration uh, requirement that are related to the to project approval if it is approved. Thanks. Are there other questions for staff? I have a couple questions. Um, the issue of the LCPIP requiring septic in advance of uh, issuing a, um, uh, an approval or what have you, how do you respond to that? Well, it, I mean, it's sort of being stated as a black and white, but it, it, it's not actually that black and white. It's, uh, it talks about there being substantial evidence in the record um, that it can be approved. It has been approved in the past. Mm -hmm. Now, it goes without saying that we're not going to issue a building permit without there being a septic permit. Now, I understand that they're going to need to go back through the septic permit standards. Um, and it talks about, you know, an approval uh, in a project going forward um, uh, in reliance on that uh, septic permit approval. Um, and, of course, we're not going to allow it to go forward without um, into development to the development phase without that septic permit mm -hmm. approval being uh, granted and provided to us. So we we think that we um, have satisfied the findings, uh, that the applicant has been through this process, uh, and um, we have substantial evidence that it's consistent with the septic permit requirements. Okay. And the dune replacement is in the same location, and it's actually going to be greater there was something in there that the you know the dune replacement is going to be the same, but it's actually going to be greater than what's there currently, etc. Right? Or greater, one to one or greater. One or There's greater. revised language right. in the resolution. And then what about my last question is about the um, storm protection nature of the barrier that's around the septic system from the August twenty first August twenty twenty one letter from the Coastal Commission. Right, so the um, comments from the Coastal Commission regarding that were responded to in the environmental review, um, in the subsequent environmental review itself, and then also in the response to comments. So in the response to comments, um, the hydrologists that the county, one of the subs um, that the county had contracted, um, reviewed the septic system um, as well as reviewing the septic system following the January 5th storms. And um, the environmental review found that the septic system, the retaining walls that have been referred to surrounding the septic system um, would only um, project above ground two to three inches and would not act as a shoreline protected right. device. Okay. It, it wouldn't be dispersing. <coughs> water as a shoreline protected device would. Thank you. I would also state that, you know, regardless of what the um, Coastal Commission um, wants to, decides to call this, um, even if it was a shoreline protected device, 
we've still made the uh, necessary findings for takings for the septic system, right. and you can't have the house or any economic development of the property without the septic without system. The septic, right. So, okay. Can I ask a follow-up on yes. that? Does the water board have to make the same findings? I don't know. I I, I mean, they're not wouldn't be the same findings because the taking. Because <laughs> our code, but it, our do code. they have a similar burden for for relative to the takings discussion to make findings? Well, yeah, I think in a way you could say that they do, right, because um, it's a constitutional issue. I mean, right. we've put it into our code, you know, given certain findings, but I think any governmental entity right. um, has to deal with the Constitution. Mm -hmm. you the regulatory know. aspects have to yeah. be, yes. Okay. I want One follow-up question. Yes, Commissioner. <coughs> when the Water Board, though, gave a variance, I thought they made a takings uh, determination then. Am I correct in that uh, conclusion? It did, and in the variance approval, which has been attached, I think, multiple times now, right. um, it talks about that. Right. Yeah. Which is now moot, though, and so it will be a slightly different situation, and they will redo that process. Right. Mm -hmm. But we are not waiting for that, that decision to be made. Move We're forward. making it a condition, a recommended condition of approval. If we, if we do this, yeah. Okay, any further questions of staff before we move to discussion? J just one clarification. It's not really a condition of approval because it's a, it's a, it's a um, requirement of true. the law. That's so true. it's not we, discretionary. We cannot, they, yeah, yeah, we cannot issue. But, okay. you still, but we, we still, the, the county still made the findings and it's part of the record. Well, and the district made the findings. Right. But right. on a, on a, a, a non-viable project at this point, because it doesn't, because the variance expired, so. Although the criteria, we don't need to get into that because it's their criteria, but right. Right. Yeah. But that's the sequence Above of Above our pay grade. That's the sequence of events. As are most things. Yes, Commissioner Castillo. You know, we talked about this at the last meeting, but just as we, the discussion has evolved here, if the project's going to be approved, I would recommend we'd add a condition about the um, uh, septic system having to be approved just because if we feel, and I think the language is not really clear here. It doesn't say that the, um, the system has to be first approved before the permit. Just means it has to be approved, and I so I'm, I'm fine with us saying that the building permit will will be satisfactory for satisfying that condition. But I think it would be a good idea just to make it clear as part of our findings that we are requiring that the septic system be approved by the water district before we would uh, issue a building Allow permit. Allow construction. Sure. Okay. Actually, I thought that was in there in the revised resolution. It is. Okay. In the resolution. It's in the resolution, but it's, I, don't, it's, I, I don't think it's an actual, I don't think it's an actual uh, permit uh, condition it, at this it, point. Yeah, time. I think it actually is now. It's fine to put that in there. I just want to be clear that, say this gets appealed to the Board of Supervisors, and the Board of Supervisors takes that condition out, it doesn't remove the requirement. No, I understand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Have the septic system in order to get the building permit. Right. Okay, so are, are we at commissioner discussion yet, or are we still? Oh, we're. I would like to be at commissioner discussion. However, I just want to procedurally, given you know the ups and downs of how we started, want to make sure that we don't need to do the straw poll, straw vote, right now first before we have our discussion. So well, what I would might recommend the discussion not inform the decision on the poll. So. Yeah. So what I would recommend is that you have a discussion yeah. on the merits of the project. Have a straw on the merits of the project yep. and then if it's to approve the project then 
actually have a vote on whether or not to reconsider at the following hearing. Yeah. Okay. okay. Commissioner Jesser, you want to lead us well, into discussion? Yeah. Commissioner Lynn seems like she's chomping oh, at the I bit. Just, <laughs> I just wanted to say that the reason I said I would make the motion on the second issue was because I really do want to hear what you have to say. Oh. You were absent last time, and it's your district. Okay. Yes. Th thank you. Thank you all for <laughs> allowing me an opportunity to weigh in on this. Um, well, uh, to me, it, given all that we've learned, um, the analysis, the environmental analysis that has come gone before, um, the comparison to all of the other houses that are in the neighborhood, the consolidation of the lots. So to really compare this to the original small shack doesn't seem entirely apt to me. Um, loathe though I am to increase development along the shoreline. Here, it just seems like an issue of fairness. Um, this house is smaller than other houses in the neighborhood. It doesn't seem to be interfering with people's use or view, which is not a legal requirement, but nevertheless. Indeed, I am persuaded that the applicant is doing everything that uh, they, he, it can do um, to meet the many objections, the many legitimate objections that have been raised. Um, but I feel like as a matter of equity, and it does seem legal, <laughs> that it's something that I, I would vote to approve. So can I just jump in because, um, as everyone knows, I was my main concern with this project is the restoration of the dunes. That's really my only concern. I'm fine with the, the size of the house. I'm actually fine with the location of the house, except that we're making a mitigation that assumes that the, the dune will be restored. And in the best of all worlds, it will happen, and we won't have loss of dunes. So, and that's why I asked the questions I did at the last hearing about the, the viability of the restoration plan and enforcement in particular. And so I went back and more carefully read the condition, of, the proposed condition of approval and the, the stipulations for the performance standards for the, the dune restoration plan. And I would like to suggest that we attempt to uh, ratchet up the, um, the provision number seven on page 26 that talks that says right now it reads that provision for possible further action if monitoring indicates that initial restoration has failed which is my concern so I would suggest that we eliminate the word possible and that we ask for provision of additional further action in an affirmative manner that's very clear and cannot be interpreted and that we add, and I don't know the wording of this exactly, but add the concept, I would rely on staff to come up with the correct wording, to add a requirement for monitoring, monitoring with a new timetable because there's a, there's a little bit of inconsistency in the testimony. The, the professionals we heard from last week said that it would, be, take, it would take five years to be able to 
have a successful restoration, mm -hmm. but we have five to 10 years in, in some of the record here. And I just think that if at the five year point, um, which is referenced in point number two, um, that something needs to change, there needs to be a different approach to the mitigation, then the professionals get called back in, but we need to then reestablish a monitoring timetable, a new monitoring timetable to continue that restoration effort because the restoration of the dunes is really critical to the success of this entire project and us being able to make the CEQA findings as well as the project merit findings. So that would be my suggestion if there's support for that. Sounds very sound. Other commissioners have thoughts? Commissioner Curran? Um, not that I, uh, well, my thought is that we should Go ahead. Um, mm. I think that uh, um, the project is, in fact, um, uh, has been very carefully considered, very carefully studied, um, has shrunk uh, substantially. Um, I, I think uh, Commissioner Lynn's recommendation on the dune restoration, if we can uh, wordsmith that uh, to be binding, is uh, excellent, and I would support that. But um, I'm prepared to uh, go forward with this. Mr. Dickinson. Um, my feeling about this proposal, the application, and the subsequent mitigated negative deck uh, really hasn't changed from what it was at the last meeting. I um, w would actually find it impossible to make the takings finding um, to approve the project with a mitigated negative declaration. I think. Um, if there's a need to do um, further environmental review, which does give everyone, including the neighbors and the applicant, the opportunity to look at alternatives that occurs through um, a focused EIR, you don't have that option and it hasn't occurred with the mitigated negative declaration. I am quite concerned about the precedent this will set we have relatively um, new policies. I mean, the issues are the, the, the AO uh, floodplain, and it is in the FEMA floodplain. Whether or not it'll, the septic system, which is what's in there, will flood or not be underwater and then saturate the soil and then the system not work. Um, it's within the dune area, which is clearly in Esha, and it's within the beach area. And I think if there was ever a case where we needed more information, this is this is that case. Um, I am not at all convinced that this is the mo most appropriate way to allow the property owner to use the property. Um, so I uh, couldn't support the mitigated negative subsequent uh, mitigated negative deck um, nor the project if we get to that. Um, Commissioner Dickinson, what additional information would you want to have? Mainly through environmental review and look at alternatives. Is, could the impact, particularly on the dune area, be reduced by an alternative location, shifting things around? No one is, I mean, we heard last time, no one has looked at that. Um, the project has been improved over the... Um, project we saw 
uh, last time. Um, but it just is not at the point yet where I think we can make the findings to override um, important environmental policies that, that we've adopted. We spent a lot of time d debating. Anyone else? Um, I, uh, I'm inclined to agree with Commissioner Desser. Um, and w with, I, I also agree with Commissioner Lind that beefing up the monitoring regulations for, or the monitoring for the dune um, repair is wise and is a critical component to protecting the area and the Calle in general. Um, the property is 9% FAR, the majority of the surrounding areas are 20% FAR. Um, there is nothing in the LCP, IP, or in the LCP, or in the Constitution, really, or the case law that says what is an appropriate size for a home. Um, what is too large, what is too small, we could, you know, come up with a gazillion different, um, you know, plans to, to look at, um, you know, would a smaller house have impact, would have, have less impact? Yes, probably. But, you know, at what point do we stop telling this homeowner what to do? Um, a change in the house size also would not change the size of the septic. So, you know, regardless, we're stuck with a septic system on that property. Um, anyway, so those are all the reasons why I think that Commissioner Desser and Commissioner Lind have it right. So. I do have one further question before we yep. move on, which has to do with the lot merger situation. So what is the minimum lot size requirement in this zone, and was the merger necessary to get closer to that minimum? Because it, in my experience, mergers occur under two circumstances when either they need to increase the land area to meet the minimum to meet other code requirements, or they can't put place a house over an internal property line. Uh, that's that's um, true when, well, it depends whether or not they're, when they, whether the applicant is applying for the merger yeah, or whether if the county is, 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 yes. Right, whether it was a required <laughs> so, merger or a voluntary, because I want to make the point that if there were two legally subdivided lots, we might be ending up having another lot that could have another infill development there. And then now we ha that we have a merger, we will have one. So I think that's an important consideration, actually. Yeah, I, I don't see them being able to subdivide the lot. There's there's no takings justification for a subdivision. Well, if they had the never merged it. They, yeah. If, they, if it was a voluntary merger and they didn't have to merge it, then it would have been two separate legal lots. Well, maybe. We, maybe. We're not positive. We don't that. know because there wasn't a certificate of compliance. Right. So we don't know that, right? <laughs> that's true, though. Um, I just want to add one thing that is potentially not 100% germane, but this kind of hearing always makes me think, don't be the last one to get an empty lot on your block, <laughs> right? Because everybody moves in and they're subject to a certain uh, amount of um, regulations. The regulations change because situations change, and then all of a sudden the last person who hasn't developed their lot 
now has the wrath of all of the other homeowners who, had they not developed their lot in that time, would be subject to you know, the wrath of everybody else. So it's like, we've all gotten here, we're pulling up the drawbridge, nobody else can come in now, especially not the last one on the block. That kind of thing drives me a little crazy. Uh, that was not a legal analysis. <laughs> that was just a well, but but also a little terrific. But yes. but to to Commissioner Wynn's point, I mean, <laughs> Scott Weiner's shenanigans. I mean, all bets are off, and so now he's wanting to increase development in the coastal zone, not have the coastal commission, you know, override whatever his latest housing scheme is. We are divide. We now are basically allowing the subdivision of lots with. Um, the you know various new legislation that's come, so I think if these folks are willing to have consolidated those lots and they're not <laughs> not going to try and add ADUs all over the I'm I'm for ADUs. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be on the record here for not being for ADUs, but I mean to address the concerns that we have in the coastal zone, and I and I feel that they have as always. I am I find Commissioner Dickinson full of uh, wisdom and persuasive uh, points. Um, but I am prepared still to make a motion. Well, I'm, what are we moving? What are we? Well, we don't really need it's, to do it's anything. A straw. Yeah, we're doing the straw yeah. right now? Okay. To, to count the votes and then, you know, if the votes are for approval, yeah. then we would ask that you actually have a vote on continuing the item and uh, re reconsidering the neg deck. So okay. I think Commissioner Lind needs to make the motion. Well, is there a motion? Make a potential motion. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to move that we reconsider our prior decision from the meeting of... Uh, would you have the straw poll for... Oh, should we have to actually have a formal straw poll? I would like yeah. to have the, the votes, okay. actually, yeah. So the straw vote is is who wants to reopen the vote actually it's took? it's for the approval of the approve project the project oh. okay the oh, straw vote. okay who uh, who of us straw vote would vote to approve the project on the merits uh cindy do you want to do a little roll call sure. yeah commissioner dickinson no commissioner bessel yes Yes. Commissioner Lynn. Yes. Commissioner Cologne. Yes. Yes. Well, we used to have a rule that any commissioner could request it be recorded, the straw vote be recorded, so I would make that request. Okay. All right. Thank you. Now, if you could vote on reconsidering the ne the decision on the neg deck uh, and then have a separate vote on continuing the item until uh, the next hearing. So Commissioner Lind, I think okay, reconsidering so the neg deck, now you're up. Now I get to mo make a motion to reconsider the decision on the negative declaration that we made on July the 31st. I'll second that. Actually, in terms of discussion, um, I read back through the resolution on the subsequent mitigated negative declaration, and it has not been revised to reflect the fact that the septic permit, it talks a lot about Stinson Beach water and approving the septic permit. There's no reference to the fact that that permit expired on July 18th of, of uh, 2023. And it, it, even just adding a sentence to that effect to make the 
record straight. Is that a friendly addition to the motion? Well, the motion will need well, to be, the resolution will need to be revised before it comes back. Right, to right, right. It would have to come back. I would agree to that, adding that as a requirement. Okay. We will be revising the the um, resolutions. Yeah. Okay, so it's been moved uh, that we reconsider the decision from the July thirty first um, consideration of the mitigated neg deck and. Um, subject to a revision for the resolution. Do we have a second? Oh wait, we do have a we second. Have, yeah. Okay, so it's been moved and seconded. Uh, roll call, please. Commissioner no. Commissioner Bessel? Yes. Commissioner Yes. Commissioner Manning? Yes. Commissioner Kern? Yes. Yes. Okay, so now if you could continue the hearing. Right, okay, so um, we need a motion to continue the hearing to a date certain? Yeah, what, what's the next date? April 28th. April 28th. I'm sorry. August. <laughs> that starts with a day. You, you know. said it. It just feels. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I'll make that motion and move to continue to August 28th. The 28th. Thank you, Commissioner Lind. Do we have a second? Uh, second. Commissioner Stepanovich, all in favor of, of the continuance, and we don't need to do a roll call for this, right? Unanimous. Unanimous. Thank you. Thank you okay, all. Okay, we are adjourned. All right. Good times. Oh, that was, that was good. Good times. Oh, that was good. Good times. 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 Good times